What I favor is a robust public conversation so that we can smartly realize that at the end of the day, we're in the business of serving the public, and it's a very, very large population that has to be served, and we owe it to them to not be uh, slow, to be thoughtful about the new technologies that we can integrate. From downtown San Francisco, you're listening to LexBlab, a production of UC Hastings Center on Legal Technology and Innovation, LexLab. I'm Drew Amerson, the director of LexLab, and I'm excited to present this week's guest, Associate Justice Mariano Florentino Cuellar of the California Supreme Court. Justice Cuellar joined us at UC Hastings to talk about artificial intelligence and the law. More specifically, Justice Cuellar is interested in exploring the importance of human values as AI is applied to the legal profession. Here's Alice Armitage, LexLab's chief executive professor, who kicked off our event. Hey, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to LexLab. LexLab is a new, uh, it's actually a vision of Dean Fagman's uh, on how to make UC Hastings a resource and a hub for legal technology throughout San Francisco, but also maybe throughout the country in, in an online, through our online presence. And the way we're trying to do that is we have three focuses on this, three goals. One is to create a concentration in law and technology for our students that will help our students have the skills necessary to practice law in the future. The second is a series of events like this one, large and small, to bring our students, faculty, our community, legal tech entrepreneurs onto campus to share ideas, to talk about developments, so that we are all learning from one another and helping the movement towards technology and the law progress. And then the third thing that we are doing is we're going to have an incubator on campus for legal tech startups. So welcome. I hope you will continue to participate. And if you want to know more, please go to our website, lexlabsf.org, and you can find out, find out more. Now I'd like to introduce Chancellor and Dean David Fagman, who is the visionary behind LexLab to begin with, but also our leader. And he is here to introduce our speaker tonight. So will you all please welcome Dean Fagman. Uh, thank you, Alice. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, I always I grew up on Rocky and Bullwinkle, so being called fearless leader. Uh, I know you didn't say fearless, but uh, fearful leader. Uh, just a, a, a note on LexLab. So LexLab is really this is a startup. Uh, it's a startup uh, idea to bring uh, legal tech tech uh, generally to our community. So you all uh, are part of it. Uh, you all can contribute to uh, how we, in the old way of saying it, pivot uh, here and there uh, to make the experience and the opportunity uh, all that much greater. Um, but let me get to the honor uh, that I have to uh, introduce our speaker, um, Associate Justice Mariano Florentino Cuellar. Tino. Uh, Justice Cuellar currently serves on the California Supreme Court, uh, where he began in January 2015. Uh, born in Mexico, he became a naturalized U.S. citizen. He received his uh, B.A. from Harvard University, magna cum laude. JD from Yale Law School and PhD in political science from Stanford University. He began his career at the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Enforcement and clerked for Chief Judge Mary uh, Schroeder of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. 
Uh, from 2009 to 2010, Justice Coya worked at the White House as special assistant to the president for justice and regulatory policy. Before serving on the California Supreme Court, he was a Stanley Morrison professor of law and professor of political science at Stanford University. His scholarship ranges from administrative law and legislation, cyber law, criminal justice, public health law, international law and security, immigration, the history of institutions. Uh, it's truly my pleasure. He's really a Renaissance man uh, and a great scholar, public intellectual. Uh, Justice Cuellar, thank you and welcome to Hastings. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a real pleasure and honor to be here uh, today. Uh, one of the reasons I love Hastings is I can show up without a tie and be fine. Uh, also, in just the first few minutes of your talk, you mentioned Rocky and Bullwinkle, and you have not seen Rocky and Bullwinkle until you see them dubbed in Spanish, which is what I experienced growing up. It is a surreal experience. I didn't know it was surreal at the time, but now I look back on it and realize that's actually not the way Rocky and Bullwinkle were meant to sound. So. I have in common with you uh, two things. I'm a lawyer, and also I'm interested in technology. That's probably why we're all here. Um, and I want to just spend a very few brief minutes just sharing some general thoughts on why it is so interesting, but probably in some ways so challenging to be a lawyer now because of the tremendous changes that are playing out around the world, many of which have to do with technology. In some cases, the technology is just... Uh, the latest version of a melody we've been hearing a long time as we struggle to think about social inequities in our world, globalization, challenges involving how people deal with uncertainty and with cultural change, how California accommodates such a diverse population. In other ways, you could argue that these changes are somewhat distinctive. You know, uh, I like to just talk about the fact that when I was a kid, which was not that long ago, although it gets longer every year, it was not uncommon for a tiny fraction of the computing power of what now fits in a smartphone to take up a big, beautiful, well, a big space like this. Not beautiful, but, but I, I just all the walls would be covered with machinery of different kinds and wires and servers. Well, not servers back then, but you know what people used to call a mainframe machine. And we now carry supercomputers starkly more powerful than any room like that just in our pocket and we don't even think for a moment about it. We, we consider it ordinary that we press a button or we don't even press a button and just say, hey, X, Y, and Z. And a remarkable feat of voice recognition takes place. And I thought I would just share some reflections that were inspired by a couple of numbers that I gathered that were salient to me just on the occasion of thinking about this particular audience. So the first uh, number that strikes me is the number of law school graduates in America, which hovers right around 34,922. That's the class of uh, 2017. Now, this is a remarkable number if you think about it, because every single one of those people goes to law school with a dream. They don't always know exactly what they're going to do on the back end. They're not always going to succeed getting the jobs that they hope for. But it makes me feel good about the legal profession and what it can give the world when I think about the dreams these people have. Some of you, that you want to help people in need, that you want to solve an injustice, that you want to create something new and innovative and interesting to make the world a little bit more fair, more predictable, more thoughtful, uh, less uh, <coughs> overwhelmed by its difficulties. 
But that's also a large number of people who are going to have to navigate a world of great change. That world includes a variable that hovers somewhere between risk and just complete uncertainty. And that is a variable of how many legal jobs and in what ways will be sort of so changed by the advent of technologies that can automate functions that we currently think of as being ones that only a lawyer can undertake. And a lawyer who's armed with knowledge, who's engaged in a conversation. So that brings me to the number of licensed attorneys in California. And that number is not a small number, 267,619, of whom a little over 190,000 are in active status. Now, fortunately, California is a very, 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 very big place, 40 million people, 164,000 square miles. So right now, there's plenty for these lawyers to do, and I'll get back to that in a moment. But I also think about how... These lawyers will fare because some of these lawyers, unlike a number of you who are law students right now, they will have trained for a very, very different legal profession than what will probably be in their bailiwick, in their lives, by the time they get closer to retirement. And they will have to contend with questions about the proper role of an automated app that is leveraging machine learning, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, reinforcement learning that will take the place of lawyers in some settings. They will have to contend with lawsuits that will turn heavily on very intricate details of the technology that some of you are wanting to learn about, trying to wrap your mind around, but is difficult to make sense of even for people like those of us who have been trying to follow AI for some years now. They will also raise, um, sometimes uh, forcefully and angrily, questions about how we regulate the legal profession here in California. So those questions arise because one of the key responsibilities of the California courts is not only to provide legal services to people or legal fora to resolve disputes, but also to think about how do we smartly and thoughtfully protect the public by regulating the legal profession. How do we not overdo it and uh, unduly shrink the size of that profession, but at the same time not uh, create a risk that the public will be talking to somebody who passes him or herself off as a lawyer and is not able to really do the job? And those questions will increasingly have to do with that supercomputer you carry in your pocket. For many, many Californians who are simply not able to afford a lawyer, the question will be, how can I close the gap between what a thoughtful, well-paid, Hastings-educated lawyer can provide me and what I have on my own when I present myself to a court as a pro se litigant or face the terrible fear that I'm going to have to deal with this by myself. And the number of people who have to go through that is not a small number. The most recent figures I could quickly find, and I am going to find better figures because I know the number has actually gone up, is that on any given sort of year, California uh, faces the prospect of having well over 4 million people be unrepresented litigants. So if one side of the coin is how do we make sure that the technologies that become available to the public to solve legal problems are technologies that are thoughtfully designed, that don't defraud people by offering answers that are superficial when they really need to talk to a thoughtful, well-educated lawyer. The other side of the coin is how do we deal with the fact that we have millions of people who can't afford a lawyer or who at best are struggling to deal with somebody who is not really skilled or able to represent them the way that they need. And if you think that this is only a problem in one or two areas of law, I can tell you 
We're talking small claims. We're talking elder uh, abuse issues, potentially. We're talking domestic violence. We're talking immigration and so on. Then we get to this smartphone thing that I've been talking about. So as many of you know, one of the big changes that's occurred in the way we think about machine learning and artificial intelligence is that it used to be that the really fancy stuff, unsupervised learning, really sophisticated models, expert systems could only be done with pretty sophisticated technologies that were not accessible to a lot of people. That's very, very different. Whether we're talking edge computing apps that live on your smartphone or accessing servers that are using neural networks with just more variables than any of us could dream up. We're talking about a series of technologies that can be available to people in very different ways. And I want to push us to be asking the question not only of how do those technologies solve the immediate problems people have, the legal questions they have right now, but how do they reshape our society over time, for good or not so good? So let me give you an analogy. Have any of you used um, online translation software, like Google Translate? In the last three years or so, the accuracy of the algorithms powering those translations have changed and increased pretty dramatically. So the accuracy of not only changing, you know, two or three word groups from Vietnamese to Spanish has gone up, but whole phrases, paragraphs that used to not make that much sense. And now, you know, most of the time, if you know both languages and you look at the translation, it's not far off. Those changes over time have an effect in increasing access to communication for people who have language barriers and cannot pay for an interpreter. But they also potentially begin to reshape the market for actually learning a language. Now, that's really interesting when you think about it, because for those of us who are bilingual or multilingual, it's a hard thing to ask how that skill set that we've been maybe lucky enough to develop actually changes the world. But one thing I can tell you for certain is that when I read a cognitive psych paper trying to describe the way people who are multilingual reason, it actually triggers very specific memories of hearing languages being spoken at the same time, Spanish and English, of dreaming in different languages. And you begin to realize that in all kinds of little ways, speaking multiple languages changes the way you reason. There's some research that suggests it actually reduces the risk of dementia because whenever you hear something, even when you're not making the effort of translating it, your mind is unconsciously thinking about how that word might be said in a different language. All of that is to say that if you really run through this translation paradigm and scale it up to the point where in real time some of the work done by some of our most skilled translators just doesn't have to be done, and some of the value for putting in the time and the effort and the energy to learn a language, which you're going to do if you're in a mixed marriage maybe, but you might not do if you have terrific software and you just need it for work, how will that affect actually the way people think over time? And again, I'm not suggesting that's all bad, but those are the questions I want us to be asking when we think about 1.54 billion smartphones sold in a year. And the last um, uh, figure that I want to just highlight is the proportion of people who use the internet now who didn't use the internet 10 years ago. And you can particularly see this in countries like China or India, where the impact has been staggering, where you have now, uh, where maybe 10 years ago, you had only a, a small fraction uh, 
of, of the population using the internet. Now, as of 2017, 71% of adults in a place like China use the internet. And China's interesting because China has incredible inequities in wealth. In, uh, if you compare these booming coastal regions and places like Shanghai with the more rural parts of the country in the West, and yet even then, you have this extraordinary, powerful trend that is shaping just about everything that people do in schools, at home, how they date, and so on. So I'm not here to tell you that I know exactly how that's going to change the legal profession, but I do have a sense that change is coming, and it's going to be big, and it's going to be exciting, and it's going to be disruptive in all kinds of terrific ways. But I hope that you're asking yourself not only the question of how does this solve my client's problem or my own problem, how is it going to have potentially downstream consequences that we haven't fully thought through, and how do we talk about them? One thing that lawyers are especially important for a society to do is they are the people who raise questions. They ask, have you thought about how that's going to affect the risk that somebody's going to sue you? Have you thought about how this might change your company's exposure to some lawsuit about the environment or whatever? So I hope that we will play this role not only as innovators and not only as people who are rushing to adapt to these technological changes, but also as the kinds of people who are asking the questions on behalf of others who don't have the voices that we do, don't have quite the right words, don't know exactly what due process or equal protection means, but you can give them voice and you can help that deliberation play a constructive role in whatever comes. So with that, I'm happy to take some questions and start a conversation. You've been listening to LexLab, recorded live during our bi-weekly Lunch and Learn sessions at the LexLab Legal Tech Innovation Center. LexLab is UC Hastings' hub for legal technology in San Francisco, featuring a resident startup accelerator, regular panel discussions, and legal resources for entrepreneurs. To learn more about LexLab or to attend a Lunch and Learn session in person, visit us online at lexlab.uchastings.edu. Yeah. So I begin to see small little like, sort of, uh, how to put it, like little flashes that suggest to me the, the, the dramatic, uh, more long-term trends that are coming. Uh, so one role that I have, which is not in the litigation space, but that has to do with what I do on court administration has to do with language access. And in the language access world, we are quite dependent on an incredible talented group of in-person interpreters who actually handle the subtleties of language in an incredible way. If you have any sense of, uh, if you want a sense of how difficult it is, just try to watch a movie and hear what is said and try to repeat it in English even, you know, as it's said. And you're going to find that after about 45 or 50 seconds, your brain begins to freeze and you get frustrated and you get angry for no particularly good reason. So I admire what they do. But it's clear to me that there's no way to solve the language access needs of California without some real collective, uh, careful use of technology. So we have a pilot program underway at the counter, so not in the courtroom setting, but where people show up to the counter and they want to form or they want to deal with some issue involving domestic violence, and we're using devices that do real-time translation. I have also uh, found, not in the language access space, but now getting a little closer to litigation, some of the disputes involving information, which is the fuel that powers particularly 
supervised and unsupervised learning, neural networks, the stuff that is really hot in AI right now, the, it seems clear to me that increasingly there are questions being raised about who controls information, how much control they have, how much they have to disclose. Some of that is arising more in the judiciary, but some of it clearly is arising in the legislature, where there's been activity recently around statutes. And then last but not least, there are a number of settings involving employment law and other areas of law where the arguments that lawyers make and the doctrines that courts have zeroed in on use words like administrability. So, you know, how do we keep track of these records when it's not administrable to do something more exact or more precise? Well, that is actually becoming a category that is more dynamic in real time as AI tools begin to be used. So the arguments about what's administrable will increasingly, I'm guessing, have to make reference to these changing technologies. Thank you. Sure. Uh, but I wanted to follow up on the language access question. And it sounds like you're running a pilot right now and you said it's at the counter, so it's not in the courtroom. It's not where decisions are being made. So I'm curious about the resistance that the California courts have to technological advances. Do you see this pilot developing to the point where it can scale, where you can have some sort of electronic translation system in courtrooms that will help people? And what are the barriers to getting there? Well, I think that there's so much happening in technology that we'll always have a responsibility to be asking ourselves how within the bounds of what we can legally and practically do, I'm gonna sound like I'm making reference to administrability here, uh, how can we best use those resources to serve the public and to perform a mission? But I gotta tell you, I think it's tough. Um, like in, in, so I'll give you different categories of what I mean, right? We definitely can do more with technology. And I think that under this particular group of judges and judicial leaders, including our chief justice, and some of us try to get involved in administration. We're trying to do more. So another pilot project we've been pursuing is with video remote interpreting, which is really important because imagine how challenging it is to be in a remote location far from a big city in you know, one of these counties in Eastern California, where you might need a language interpreted in the courtroom that is not easy to find in your population. So Arabic, Farsi, maybe even Vietnamese. Right now, it's a, it's a challenging thing for all kinds of reasons, budget-wise, administratively, to put an interpreter in a car, have them drive out from San Jose all the way out to Shasta County, for example, to do that. With video done right, we can solve some of those challenges. But video, I mean, that's not even that like AI-oriented at all. But it's actually really difficult. So the stress of being the kind of interpreter that is exact enough and careful enough to not miss any nuances, any of the idiomatic expressions people have, which even the best translation algorithms, I think, still struggle with, and also be dealing with the fact that your client is in a remote location, I find that I've learned a lot just from watching interpreters and listening to them, and I recognize that that's challenging. There are other settings where the challenge is not any barrier that we impose, but rather a statutory limit on you know, how we might develop a record that can be used for appeal. So I think it, what, I, what I favor is a robust public conversation so that we can smartly realize that at the end of the day, we're in the business of so serving the public, and it's a very, very large population that has to be served, and we owe it to them to not be uh, slow, to be thoughtful about the new technologies that we can integrate. But I'll, I'll just take it one step further. 
if you really push this question forward, at some point you get to the deeper issue of like, what is a judge and why do we have a judge? Like, let's think about administrative law judges, maybe that face pretty routine claims. Why can't we automate the entire process? And my answer is, in almost every big technology policy issue that I've had a chance to work on in the executive branch or that I've written about as a law professor, there are costs and benefits to society, but also to particular people who have something to gain or lose from instantiating the technology in a particular way. So there is a kind of who guards the guardians question as we get closer and closer to the core questions of who's actually making the decision. And I, I got to say, I think in some ways we're really innovative and creative, and I think we can solve some of these problems. But I also think we make mistakes. Like there are times when people defer too much to technology. It has the patina of objectivity. There is some great social psychology research showing how much people defer to just somebody wearing a white lab coat. And uh, so, so I think we have to be mindful about those questions and then ask, how do we get enough technological savvy and public engagement to make sure that as we use the technology, it responds to what we really need? Yeah, over here. Um, so this is sort of a follow-up to what you were just talking about and answering Drew's question, but it's also trying to ask you to look at, at this is technology that actually is starting to impact judges. And what it is, if there's a, at least one legal tech startup that is using AI to analyze the opinions of trial judges and perhaps appellate judges as well to give law, and they're selling it mostly to law firms, but it gives them sort of a breakdown of every motion that a particular judge has ever, um, how, it, how that judge has ruled on any kind of motion so that a lawyer preparing to go for forward with a client on a particular issue knows what you know knows what the judge that they're before has thought about and what motions they seem to favor and those that they routinely dismiss and and then also an analysis of all the decisions what does that feel like from the person being analyzed it feels interesting what can i say <laughs> i mean um how to say this i i don't i don't want to criticize anybody's business model i think um I think that there's a, a lot of room for society to experiment, right? So long as we do so in a mindful way. And I would say um, two things about that. The first thing I'd say is as a, somebody who has the not so distant experience of having not been a judge and having now been a judge, I find it interesting to, like when I, when I hear about that business model, this is what I reflect on. The experience of teaching law students and holding up a case and saying to them, do you see how full of contradictions this case is? Can't you see that, you know, in part one, the justice is saying this, and then in part two, it's sort of taking away what it said in part one, and then in part three, it's sort of going in a totally different direction. And now I'm thinking, consensus building? Do I pick up votes? How do I make my colleagues agree with what I'm trying to say? And I see these products as a collective enterprise that reflects the reality that we are trying to come to agreement frequently. And it is not really that just one judge or justice sees something in a particular way, but it's a series of dynamic responses. And the math actually gets pretty complicated. Like, it's not at all difficult to say, oh, you know, here's the number of motions that X has ruled on, and here's how they go. It's not that hard to even say, oh, we've even coded the motions so that there are these three or four variables. It's even not that difficult to say, oh, we've used actually principal components analysis and we can cluster things. But actually, it gets pretty hard to do the counterfactuals pretty quickly. And I would say once you start taking it like really honestly, 
there's a level of complexity and a difficulty in predicting some of the nuances that will actually legally matter, like how you write the disposition, how exactly you write the disposition, that I would just say, you know, it, it's going to be a while, I suspect, before all of that is captured. And if and when it is, I'm reminded of a course I took on, or several courses I took on game theory, where the concept of a mixed strategy then comes up, that if you know that you're being predicted, then you shape your behavior so that you become more difficult to predict. That's right. Throw those robots off. So we shall see. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thanks for interesting conversation. Uh, my question would be about accountability in AI. So already today we have some companies that you get decisions made by machine learning or artificial intelligence, so-called. So what would be your opinion how regulations will impact these companies that made decisions for your loan approval or if you get a rent approval and so on when it's life-changing decision but made by machine learning or AI, how this will be regulated or will it be regulated? So I think that's a great question, and it's a very profound one. It raises so many sub-questions. We could just talk about your question for a whole semester. Oh, yeah. but, but, but that's why it's a good question. I think it's important to recognize two things to start off with. The first is that we have long been using different arrangements, different kinds of, if you want, uh, forms of automation or even very, very basic artificial intelligence to inform decisions like this. So an actuary, particularly one working with a computer, is uh, doing some of what you're describing in the insurance market. And if you go back even further, uh, mathematical formulas really have some of the qualities of what you're describing. If you use Bayes' rule to think about probabilities. But but in a way, I think your question is... is uh, an especially apt one because part of what might be changing is the pervasiveness of the move to deploy some technological infrastructure to assist in decisions that previously used to be primarily made by humans. Maybe humans using some math, but still by people who conceptually could explain what was going on. And one of the tricky things about the boom of interest in AI right now is that the breakthrough techniques that are most drawing attention are not the techniques of AI, which were used in the past, that are very easy to trace logically how they work. So if I design an expert system to take what Professor, uh, what, what Dean Fagan knows about health and the law, which is a lot, I'd spend a lot of time talking to him, I'd figure out what logical rules he's using, I'd figure out how he's making inferences, and I'd find a way to code that. And there might be 320 rules, and there would still be some complexity about how to apply that to the facts. But that's a very different kind of regulatory challenge because I know which of the principles are being used than if I use the techniques that are behind the translation miracles that we're seeing, where the convolutional neural network doesn't exactly tell you why it knew that this was the right word to use to match Chinese to English this particular way. I think that takes real attention to one basic feature about human society and law. And that feature is language. This is what I mean by that. When people point out to me that humans themselves are not very good at explaining why they make decisions, which is largely true, I then respond by saying, we have a whole infrastructure that we use called law and institutions to force people to give reasons for what they do. It's you in a classroom and your professor saying, why did you say that? But what's your counterargument to this argument? And then you're having to go on more than just whatever your first impulse was. You're trying to persuade and you're trying to sound sensible. 
That's what I go through when I look at how my colleagues might look at me funny if I make up an argument that makes no sense to them, right? That move to convert something to language that we can deliberate about and that we can hold each other accountable through the use of is something that is absolutely critical, I think, in any effort to apply existing law and think about how it works in, the, in, in an age of more technological AI advance. And if I may, one more question. So right now we can see that uh, a lot of service, at least in machine learning or AI, becoming commodities. So you can just go to Amazon mm -hmm. and buy machine learning model. You can go to another company and buy a set of data. And then you take this data, you train your model, and you apply it to a company. So who, what is your opinion? Who is accountable of the outcomes of such algorithm when you have different players that impact the decisions and I think some of those questions raise new legal problems, but some don't. And that what I would like to say is another interesting part of any conversation where people ask, can we regulate AI, is to say, well, are we prepared to give people some exemption from all the laws that apply to people if they happen to say that they're using AI? And I suspect that the, the answer will generally be no. And so then the question becomes, how do we apply existing laws that apply to people to people who happen to be using AI to support their decision. So think about a, I'm trying to be just completely hypothetical, but if, if, a, if a company fires an individual and says, we've done that because we actually are trying to keep track of how our employees perform and we have this really fancy unsupervised learning system and it suggested that this person is in the lowest quadrant and they're not a good performer, we're firing them. Employment laws still apply. There will still be a conversation about whether the person got discriminated against or not. And so then the question becomes, how does that existing infrastructure for conversation about what's legal and illegal applies when somebody says, don't look at me, look at the system, right? But I, I don't know that legal systems around the country or the world have made the move to say that that argument is an insulation from responsibility. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I recently learned an interesting fact about Brazil. The government of Brazil guarantees um, a, the right to appellate review all the way up to the Supreme Court. And as a result of this, the Brazilian Supreme Court gets uh, over 100,000 cases a year. In order to deal with that, they have a, an AI that they've trained, they've been training, that they are training to help sift through um, these cases they've received so that they can deal with all of that. And so. My question is, what do you think of the possibility that emerging technologies may not only change um, the way existing legal processes are carried out, but make possible a restructuring of those processes into forms that would not be possible without the assistance of these technologies? I think that is not only possible, it's likely, but there are many variables and terms to define in that scenario. And first of all, I appreciate your, your example because it's an indication of how the flip side of the coin of the argument that we have an infrastructure in place that already in some sense regulates people who are using AI because we have a system that <coughs> regulates people. The flip side of that is that the degree of experimentation and, you know, efforts to just sort of like cross the threshold to see what sticks and what works. There's a lot of that going on. And that can be 
that can make for some interesting choices for any institution, right? If somebody comes up and says, we've never been particularly good at solving X problem. We now have a better way to do it. We have these technologies. So that's kind of step one. Step one is how do these tools graft on to existing processes? You're asking about steps two, three, and four in a way, which is what kind of dispute resolution mechanism or review process or court system or administrative agency would we want to build when that's kind of, it's routinely available to people not only to have AIs that can perhaps have a credible conversation with people and sound more human, but also people in their big, um, in this big infrastructure of smartphones that we have, they have their own personal AIs that manage their com personal communications with those other AIs so that when you get an email, you're not even certain whether it's coming from somebody's AI assistant or from that person. Some of you might have used email programs already that if somebody says like, hey, do you want to meet maybe on Tuesday afternoon, it will pre-curate for you responses that you might give just by giving a click, right? That's, you know, small potatoes compared to perhaps what will come and what will be routine. And if there's one thing you remember about this reflection, which I offer to you with the humility of knowing it's tentative, like there's a lot that will surprise all of us in this room, but I sense a deep interconnection between law, AI, and language. Like language, the conversation you and I are having is relevant to law. It's the, the, the main means through which we conduct law, whether you're a civil or common law country or whatever. The holy grail in AI has for a long time been language. Like it's not a coincidence that linguists have always kind of shown up in the debates about AI and have been really central players in some of the development of it. And language, frankly, is also how we experience the world in some sense. So, so I feel like uh, these questions are hard enough already. I think we have some grace period of time where really it's going to be more like, does this or that technology make sense with existing institutions? But the question about how to reshape institutions will come more quickly once breakthroughs begin to happen, if they do. Uh, but let's say if they do on, on some time scale, like the next 15 years around language and around the way AI can use language in a manner that creates for much more convincing and scintillating and, and compelling relationships that people have and or teaching and pedagogical experiences, because I think that begins to change many more fundamental things about society. I'm sorry that I have to go. This has been great for me, and thank you thank for your you. questions. Thank you so much, and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks again to Justice Cuellar for taking the time to join us. Make sure to tune in again next week for the introductions to Lex Lab's inaugural group of legal tech startups in our Accelerator program. To learn more about Lex Lab, or to learn how to attend our Lunch and Learn sessions, visit us online at lexlab.uchastings.edu. That's L-E-X-L-A-B uchastings.edu. This show is recorded live at UC Hastings by Jake Quinton and has been edited and produced by Ben Ambrogi.